welcome to Forests, Folklore, and Fantasy. My name is Kelly, but I write and publish under my pen name, K.M. Rice. Our discussion today is going to revolve around this concept of reclaiming our roots, reclaiming our connection to the land, our connection to place through the vehicle of education and of increasing our awareness of our cultural inheritance. And this was a discussion that I promised to kickstart early in this podcast in my introductory episode. And that is what we're going to be doing today. For those of you who haven't listened to my introductory episode, other than being a fantasy author and fantasy nerd, I am an amateur folklorist and an educator both online and uh, for the past year, I have been hosting informative and educational evenings in my rural mountain community, and they've been very well attended. And the conversations and discussions that we've had after I have spoken for roughly an hour sharing some of the history and folklore usually centered around a specific holiday the discussions that we've had afterward have been incredibly fascinating. And through these conversations with people, and admittedly, it is restricted to a geographic space, but I have since seen fragments of this conversation occurring in the online space as well. So I don't think this is an isolated need. But through these conversations, I feel like there is a deep yearning in a lot of people to want to connect with their cultural inheritance and with their roots in a way that puts nature first and honors the natural world. The pre-Christian or indigenous European cultures were animistic and revered nature to the extent that nature was the divine and the divine by and large was an expression of nature even ancestor worship and expressions of the ancestors such as the huldefolk in iceland or the elves the hidden folk are considered to be a personification of nature of the forces of nature through the coalescence of this concept of an ancestor. I know that that takes a little bit of mind-bending for the modern mind, but bear with me in that the more we understand what we know of the point of view of the pre-Christian European peoples, from whom many of us descend, the more it can help heal the wound that we are carrying, that most of us are carrying through rupture with our connection with the land, through colonization, and through industrialization. These are really big, complicated issues. I don't feel well-versed enough to really pick them apart at the seams, but my goal today is to just lay some groundwork and help enhance your own literacy and maybe help give voice to something you've been feeling but haven't been able to articulate. And my reason for doing this is not only have I seen this need and heard this need in person with these events I've been hosting, but also I have had other educators give voice to this feeling inside of me and to this knowledge inside of me that I didn't know how to voice. One of those people, and I 
highly recommend you check out her podcast and her work is Danica Boyce. She has the Fair Folk podcast. I haven't extensively listened to her podcast, but I have taken one of her courses on it's called Unearthed, and it's on Christian imperialism. And it was very eye-opening for me because it explored a lot of the groundwork of how the various cultures of Europe were influenced by uh, Christian imperialism and how then by extension here for me, where I live in the United States, um, it has shaped our culture. Let me rephrase that. Her course didn't directly address these ripple effects. These were connections that I made. Um, and it just gave me so much clarity on why things are the way that they are. And that's something that I'm trying to do as well. I'm trying to help share the knowledge that I've gained and what I've learned so that other people can also find the peace that I am finding by increasing my awareness and knowledge of the history and the folklore of of Europe and where my ancestors came from and why. I am very new to podcasting. I'm still trying to remember to take breaths as I'm speaking. So thank you to all of you who are listening today and who've listened to my first few episodes for bearing with me as I learn the ropes and even learn how to use my body to use my voice in such a way. Um, I appreciate it and I apologize for any of the awkwardness that will hopefully get smoothed out as things go. That said, I am you know, sometimes an awkward person. So I can't make I can't make any huge promises, but we'll we'll just set the bar kind of low for now and we'll see we'll see how it turns out. There is a tremendous amount of intersectionality among the concepts of climate change and or human instigated destruction in our planet. Ecology the nature of pagan or pre-Christian customs across the board, not just in Europe, and this desire to go back to a simpler way of living or a more sustainable way of living. And I don't think it's a coincidence that there's a rising urgency that people are feeling to to act on or take action around these concepts. And I think that to truly understand where we are, we need to have an examination of where we have been. So I reside in California in the United States of America. And while I think a great deal of people will gain something from this conversation, it's going to land in a different place for those of us who, like me, are not living on the ancestral land of our ancestors. That said, I am well aware that it is human nature to migrate that ever since we became a species and we left Africa and we started roaming the planet, this is what we do. Humans travel. Humans walk. Humans settle in different places. Um, I don't believe in drawing an arbitrary line at any point in time in history and saying, okay, well, everything beyond this point is no longer indigenous or no longer natural. Um, because I think that that's negating a lot of the archaeological record and the record of, of where we've been as a species. But 
That said, more recently, in the past several centuries, in the past thousand years, there have been many of us who have been displaced. And arguably, everyone residing in this nation has been displaced in one way or another. The indigenous peoples of the Americas have survived through so much disruption and rupture and forcible removal from their ancestral lands. Yes, reservations exist in the United States and Canada or reserves, uh, but they are not always geographically located in the places that those people's ancestors were from. And for various reasons, many indigenous peoples of the North Americas and all of the Americas don't necessarily reside in those government-defined places. So many of us are experiencing a disconnect to or from the land that our ancestors once worshipped as sacred in so many different ways. Given that I opened with saying how I know it is human nature to migrate and to travel and to move around, um, I know that it is there is this constant tension between this is human nature, this is what we do, and the idea of, of us being tied to place. So know that I'm speaking about being tied to place in a, a flexible, somewhat nebulous sense. I am bringing it up because I think it is important because indigenous European peoples and pre-Christian peoples, again, I'm, I'm re-mentioning this point that their spirituality and their philosophies for understanding the world, the lens through which they understood their existence and the way the world functioned was directly derived from the earth, from the changing seasons, and from nature. And in this post-industrial world, in this modernized, urbanized world, when we have migrated or been forcibly removed, we've experienced a severance of our connection to that land. And it does affect us to this day. And it has ripple effects in ways that I think we're only just now really gaining the knowledge to examine. So... This is my goal today. I am really hoping that what you learned today in this episode is something that you will either be able to sit with and have some thoughts about and have some inner dialogue about, or maybe even you're going to feel moved to have some actual conversations with friends and family about this subject as I have. And um, the results have been really empowering to me and and to those in my circle because as I've said it's often something that we've been feeling for a long time and just haven't been able to coalesce into a concept or an idea or even words I can't discuss this rising interest and thirst for knowledge in traditional practices and cultures without addressing the rise in, these are umbrella terms, but the rise in interest in paganism and in witchcraft. When I host these events locally, I get folks who self-identify as witches or priestesses or pagans, or more commonly, people who say, I am really interested in this and I want to know more about this and aren't necessarily assigning it a spiritual belief, but wanting to understand more about their heritage. So my very academic side wants to take a moment to say that the word pagan only means non-Christian. It is inherently a Christocentric word. There was never a cohesive group of pagan people, even though the term is used that way. Um, and there was never a cohesive set of like 
pagan spiritualities or pagan customs literally just means not Christian. And in many circles in the past, and unfortunately, sometimes still today, is used in a derogatory way. The word witch is used to describe a practitioner of magic who uses their magic for ill will, to harm other people, or to manipulate other people. That's its historic use. Thanks to people like Gerald Gardner, it is going through a revival and a reclamation. In fact, I see both of these words quite clearly is going through a reclamation. Uh, practitioners of the Wiccan faith self-identify as witches. And there are many people who identify as pagan as their form of spirituality in one way or another. And this is the first time in history that I think people have felt safe enough, and by the first time in history, I mean like the last century to now, to use those words and assign a meaning from within their community. So from within the Wiccan community or within the pagan or neo-pagan, as in new pagan community, to assign meaning to that word. Um, so I just wanted to get those definitions out of the way because there is a lot of misinformation out there. But that is where we stand with those terms. The rising fascination with witchcraft or Wicca and paganism is not happening in a void. Um, if you don't know pre the 2020 census in the United Kingdom, uh, Wicca was the fastest growing religion and was expected to be, the, the census was expected to confirm that. Um, so this is something that's happening across cultures and across countries. If you think about the shifts that our generations have been going through for the past 50, 60, 70 years, we've seen in this country, in the United States, and likely in Canada, and I can speak for other countries on this too, but I will talk about the United States specifically, we've seen the baby boomer generation give rise to the counterculture movement and challenge a lot of the, the traditions that were being passed on by their parents about maintaining organized religion. Then we had Gen X and millennials who, in record numbers, turned away from organized faith. There are various reasons for this. Some of it, you could say, is the role of science in our culture. Some of it, in terms of Catholicism specifically, is because of the scandals that were brought to light, given the horrible things that some of the clergy members were doing. And now we have Gen Z coming in, maturing into adulthood. And on the coattails of millennials are similarly not as interested as in participating in organized religion. And that has not only left some generational gaps between older people maybe being more religious or viewing the church and or their organized faith as the right way to do things and the younger generation being much more fluid in their understanding of their spirituality or perhaps lacking spirituality altogether. And this has understandably left a large void in a lot of people's lives that they are seeking to fill with something. And Again, given the intersectionality of environmentalism and climate anxiety and what we learned from going through lockdowns and pandemics, this skepticism over the way that we're doing things and, and this knowledge of the fragility of our society, a lot of people have found out about pre-Christian customs and this idea of linking spirituality to the earth and to nature and have found it incredibly healing and appealing. 
if this shift away from organized religion in the traditional sense has been happening for several generations, it's fair to ask the question of why now? I I still think, yes, that lockdown and the pandemic have had a large role to play. Um, but also we cannot discount the power of the internet and people using platforms such as this, platforms such as TikTok, all sorts of different forms of social media to communicate, to share what they're feeling, to share their knowledge, to share their expertise. And it has helped others learn and helped feed this growing desire among many people across the board to live a more independent, simpler way of life that's rooted, and I use that word intentionally, that is rooted in a connection with the earth. We see this in a rise in backyard gardening and this obsession with homesteading. Um, more people are keeping chickens than ever did in my lifetime. There is a rising fascination with more natural modalities in terms of healing, such as herbalism, and a desire to not only understand how we got here as a society, but also where we came from. And if you're listening to this, then chances are you have felt some or all of these things as well. The rise of witch talk and a booming interest in all things witchy and pagan is a part of this societal shift of awareness. And I see it as an expression of people wanting to connect with their ancestors, whether they're able to articulate it as such or not, and connect with the earth, which in many ways is our ancestor and the expression of our ancestors, as I mentioned at the start of this episode and wanting to further and deepen their connection with the natural world. So it's completely logical and understandable then to me that these earth-based philosophies and spiritualities are appealing to people. I also think this is why so many of us are drawn to high fantasy and High fantasy is fantasy like Lord of the Rings. Usually, like there are parameters for different types of fantasy. If you didn't know, um, high fantasy usually involves like a sacred object or a quest. It it really is the fantasy following in Tolkien's um, example. But I think so many of us love those worlds and are drawn to those worlds because they're also set in a pre-industrial society where people travel on horseback and grow in their own food or trade for their own food. They hunt, they fish, they live in a closer connection with the land. I mean, this is a huge reason why I personally was drawn to Tolkien. The hobbits celebrate a simple life. Elves love and nurture the trees, and the trees have personhood in Tolkien's world. And a lot of people don't understand this, but one of my favorite aspects of Middle-earth is the concept of there being no fences. The characters can set out on foot for days or years, or they could get on a horse and ride as far as they can. I mean, think about that. We don't live in that world. Many of us can't even walk out our front door and keep going. To me, that's a basic human right. 
we should have the basic right to movement. I go back to what I said in the beginning. It is human nature to roam. Our bodies were built to roam. My anthropology professor in college told us that the gate that we have when we're like walking the aisles of the grocery store, that kind of amble, that slow movement is the most calorie efficient form of locomotion that we have. In fact, I think he made a more grandiose statement, but I can't back it up with the facts right now because I'm speaking off the cuff at the moment. Uh, but he was talking about it being, I believe, an incredibly efficient form of locomotion in the animal kingdom as well. But certainly for us and the different ways that we can move. Um, which is bad news to those of us hoping that going for a leisurely stroll is really going to, you know, shed a few pounds. But the reason that it is such an incredibly efficient form of locomotion, and by efficient I mean calorie conserving, is because this is what we evolved to do. We evolved to be moving. We spent about 90% of our time on this planet as a species as hunter-gatherers. So we are still living in these Paleolithic bodies. And yet somehow in our quest for comfort and control, we have created a society and a world that locks us in so that I can't walk out my front door and just keep going. I mean, you can, but it takes a lot. It takes a lot of planning and you're going to be moving through a lot of very urban spaces. So that's why to me, this concept of no fences in Middle Earth was so romantic and represented liberty and freedom in a way that I sadly don't see in the world around me, even though I can go out my back door and be in a forest. I find that the further I roam, the more space I need to roam. Another really appealing aspect of Tolkien and much of high fantasy is that if there's going to be a fight, it's two people with swords, not guns. Courage and friendship and love are revered above all else. And in many of these fantasy stories, decisions are made by consulting the moon and sacred wells and seeking visions and connecting to the good people or the fairy folk as they do in the mists of Avalon, uh, the land guardians. In the Winter Night Trilogy, which is set in medieval Russia, there are frequent references to the natural world and to supernatural and or folkloric inhabitants who often are guardians of, of place. I say this to, again, emphasize this link between many of us who gravitate toward fantasy and perhaps what we feel in our own hearts and how fantasy sometimes reflects the world that we wish we lived in, in those ways. And in all the ways that I just listed, reflects the world as it used to be. So even though I haven't written any high fantasy to date, nature plays a role in every book I write and every story I tell, especially my book, Darkling, which is known as my debut novel, although it is 10 years old by now. Um, just last year in 2023, we celebrated, we, me, <laughs> and the characters celebrated our 10-year anniversary, which was like pretty mind-blowing, but really cool. Uh, but the characters in Darkling live in a similarly pre-industrial society on the edge of a forest. And in Anamkara, which is book four of my Afterworld historical fantasy series. Or maybe I should be calling it historical romanticy. Romanticy is a word I just learned, and I'm so embarrassed that I've just learned it. But I'm happy to have it in my vocabulary now. 
So that's why I'm using it. It's my shiny new word, and I'm using it today. Uh, but there are whole sections in Anamkara that are odes to the vitality of truly shedding the mental blinders of society and connecting with nature. So it is no surprise to me that there's a growing interest in our pagan roots and a building desire to reconnect with them, and that a lot of the folks I've met are also Tolkien fans or love the mists of Avalon, uh, because, again, there's just so much intersectionality. Most of these people are also highly sensitive to other cultures. Um, many of them are gender fluid. Uh, many of them are also interested in ecology and wanting to do what we can to help the environment. There are many voids to be filled here as people explore what these concepts mean to them. And I will be among the first to say that not everyone offering to fill these voids is someone trustworthy. I've encountered this myself, moving in some, I'll call them like new age or neo-pagan circles. Um, and that's really what kickstarted my obsession with going through the historical record and documented sources, because I was being told about goddesses who never even existed, customs that were supposedly practiced that I can't find documentation of anywhere. Um, and people orally pass this information on, and they probably received it from a trusted source. But then when the information isn't vetted and people perceive it as truth, it's not inherently dangerous, but the, you know, the nerd in me just really wants it to be factual and to build a groundwork for people on what we know. And then they can take that information and do with it what they will. So I always encourage people to take what you read or what speaks to you from what I share and continue your own studies and understanding by vetting and growing the information that I share. And I do not know everything. I am going to probably be on this journey for the rest of my life, however long that is. And I am learning as I go. Um, but it, I do feel like I've been alive long enough now and doing this long enough now that I have something to say and something to share, uh, which is why I'm recording this rather than curled up reading a hundred-year-old book. But to return to my opening statement about how many of us here in the U.S. have been disconnected from our central lands through immigration and or forced removal. I want to add to that that many of us don't know where we came from. If we're lucky enough to have access to genealogy information or have a family member who is keeping up genealogy, then we can have some sense now you can buy these DNA kits that point us in a direction. And by the way, my understanding of how these DNA analyses work is that what they're doing is comparing your DNA to extant populations. So if it's saying you are Polish, that means that your DNA is matching a lot of the people in Poland. But as I said, <laughs> it is human nature to migrate and for populations to shift and ebb and flow. But more to the point, even though DNA can push us in a certain direction, DNA void of context and genealogy void of context aren't always very meaningful. And given that nearly all of us come from a place or a group of people who were colonized either by empire or spirituality 
there are a lot of different forms colonization can take. Something that severed our connection with the land, many of us have felt the need in the past to reforge that connection. And a lot of European descended peoples in this country did that by, or do that, by adopting or appropriating aspects of other indigenous cultures, which quite often is not appropriate. For example, the Lakota come to mind. And there are many reasons why it's not appropriate. And while I was writing out the outline for this episode, it occurred to me that other than the apparent, you know, the fairly obvious reasons of why it's not necessarily appropriate to culturally appropriate, I realized that in doing so, it's not good for anyone because it's othering both groups. You're othering the group that you're taking these concepts from because in in a way you're kind of exotifying them, but also you're really deeply othering yourself because if you weren't born into that culture, you weren't raised in that culture, you're not a part of that cultural inheritance, you're always going to be aware that you're an outsider. And to reinforce this concept of yourself as an outsider isn't actually going to facilitate your goal of forging a connection with those cultural practices and healing your connection with the land. I'm going to share with you an anecdote now from my own life. Um, I felt this need within myself from birth, more or less. My very first word, other than like mommy and daddy or mama and papa, was outside. As a teenager and a young person, I could not get enough of of what was you know sold to me as Native American wisdom, history, spirituality. Um, I was had black elk speaks. I had um, bury my heart at wounded. I had pretty much every book I could get my hands on, and gleaned a terrific understanding from that. But those people weren't my ancestors, not biologically. And yet it made sense to me because I was born and raised in a place with an ecological mindset. I'm looking out my window right now at the forest. When I was a child, I had the great privilege, which I shouldn't have to call it privilege. We should all have access to this. But I had the great privilege of being able to observe the natural world and understand those connections innately, even without having the vocabulary to express it. But the other factor in the younger version of me's need to turn to the indigenous peoples of this continent for some sort of spiritual guidance or understanding comes from the fact that I was raised on the unceded lands of the Ohlone people. My brother once found an arrowhead. We had physical evidence of the people who came before and we loved and love this land so deeply that to to us the people who had been the custodians of this land before us were so revered and in our minds as an adult looking back i can see that we 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 rose the indigenous people of this area, the people who were no longer there, we rose them to demigod-like status in our minds. And I realized that in many ways, because we were not void, we were not raised with a religion, we were using them more or less as ancestor spirits. We were worshiping them as the ancestors who had come before and who so beautifully walked this earth and looked after this land and we gave them so much reverence and yet they are not my ancestors my ancestors came from across the sea my ancestors had names that to this day 
are foreign to me. They have humor that is foreign to me. I have heritage from many different places in Europe, but on my father's side, the most recent immigrant was a man from Ireland. And like many, many families, it was not spoken of. The old country, as it were, was a place to forget. It wasn't a place to keep alive in in song or in language. And I think that's true for many families who ended up here on this continent due to immigration because there was a reason their ancestors left. And this process of assimilation happened here that often resulted in erasure of the culture or the nationality that the the family or person had left behind. As a result, that's big part of why there are so many of us who even by rights should still have some connection if we were not removed forcibly, if we were not kidnapped and sold into slavery, uh, if we were not born into slavery, if we had literate ancestors, we we should have some form of a record. Why, why was our culture from the place we left not kept alive? And there's a lot of different reasons for that. Suffice it to say that the United States still is, and previously in history even was even more so, um, had this pressure to conform and had this concept of foreigners being people you couldn't trust. And so immigrants have and still feel this dramatic need to conform and not stand out as the newcomer. But this urge to sever connection to Europe or wherever the people have come from has led to this sense of rupture and disconnection from our places of origin. I read... Angela's Ashes by Frank McCourt when I was in high school. And it was the first time in my life that this light bulb went off, that I formed the connection when I was reading that book and hearing the sense of humor that were being shared by the characters. And if you don't know, it's um, it's a piece of nonfiction. It's like memoir about uh, a man, a man's childhood as a very impoverished person in Ireland who, and he eventually emigrates to the United States. And I remember reading it under the shade of an oak tree while waiting for one of my younger siblings to get out of school so we could get picked up and go home and setting the book down and going, oh my gosh, this is my dad and my uncles. They sound like these people. And then I felt like this really meaningful moment, this, this, it made myself make sense because I was like, we're not just super weird. My family's not just super weird. My family's Irish. It was one of the first times that I truly felt and knew and understood that my family came from somewhere, that I came from somewhere. And the very tragic part for many of us is that that somewhere isn't a place I can return to. There are other people there. Sometimes the other people there are unwelcoming to my nationality, which is United States and or American. My ancestors aren't there anymore. I can't go back in time to the point that they lived there and understand what it was like. I don't know that land. I don't know those stones or birds or the scent of the flowers. I do not belong in Ireland just because some of my genetics are from Ireland. But nor do I belong in the place 
where I live in so many senses. Again, it is unceded land. So I am liminal. I am in between. I am without an ancestral place. And chances are you are liminal too. And the best way I can connect with my ancestors and learn of their culture is through travel and through study and through keeping their customs alive or perhaps reforging them if there is appropriation involved in rekindling a connection with our pre-Christian ancestors, then it is an appropriation of custom without context and ritual without meaning. Two things I have ardently sought to remedy through my educational offerings as much as possible. I have only gained the literacy to put these feelings into words somewhat recently. So again, I thank you for bearing with me as I'm sure this discussion will evolve and continue over the course of more episodes. But my main point is that if you found this podcast or this episode because like me, you are a seeker a wanderer through history and understanding, then know that you are far from alone. There are many of us. And though we may just be finding our voices, this community, I will call it, will only grow. Again, I don't have the answers, much less all the answers. But I do know that until a thing is voiced, it cannot be addressed. Until a thing is acknowledged, it cannot be healed. And that learning is a key component to healing. This is a journey I'm on personally, and I will continue sharing my understanding and awareness and my knowledge as it grows. So to those of you who are willing to join me on this journey, or in fact, feel like it is reflective of your journey. Thank you so much for the support. I know that some of the things I've said, even in this episode, may seem contradictory, and perhaps they are. But this is the nature of exploration. This is what comes with the growing pains of giving voice to concepts that are not talked about enough in this society and in my country. I think a lot of this discussion is centered around being in the United States and Canada. I think that, of course, it also pertains to the peoples of Europe, but given that there is still so much extant indigenous European culture in Europe, there are places you can go to view Neolithic tombs. They don't have the same struggles that we have in this nation or in North America. It's a different history. It's not the wounds of colonization aren't per se as recent. To use a medical analogy, they might not be as raw. And many people there may not truly, unless they're immigrants themselves to Europe, may not truly feel the sense of liminality that I have attempted to 
express in this episode. Again, this is just to open floor to some concepts and lay the groundwork for discussions that we will hopefully continue to have. I apologize if I was a little all over the place, um, but thank you. Thank you for hearing me out. And hopefully this conversation makes sense in some way. I know it probably felt like I was pulling a lot of disparate parts together to try to make them cohesive. Hopefully I was somewhat successful. If I was even quasi successful, then I'm happy with the effort. (laughs) And this is a subject we will return to um, in the future. Thank you again, dear listener, so much for giving me this much of your time. And I hope this has instilled something in you or left you with something meaningful. And I would also like to thank the brilliant composer, Lane Thomas, who whose music I am using to introduce for the intro and outro of this podcast and to help break the subjects into different sections. It is from his album, The Lands Beyond, which is beautiful fantasy music. I would also like to thank everyone who has liked and followed this podcast so far. You have all been amazing if you found this episode to be something that uh, you saw as beneficial, then please don't hesitate to also like and follow Forest's Folklore and Fantasy and to share with friends and others whom you think would benefit from this conversation that we're having. You can always find me on social media. My main haunt these days is Instagram. And last but certainly not least, I would love to extend a heartfelt thank you to my supporters on Patreon who have really helped make this podcast possible. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, may your hearth be warm and your heart be full.